and we're having a conversation about love, and this conversation we're having about love is a really personal conversation. For some of you in the room, it's personal because you're disappointed by love. For some of you, you're looking for love. Some of you miss love. Some of you are frustrated with love. Some of you are like, and you've talked to me, some of you are talking, well, I don't even know what love is, right? I wouldn't know if it hit me in the face. Love can be an elusive thing. And so here's what we've said for the last several weeks, that our culture is obsessed with love. Our culture would say that love is all we need and love is the answer. And we said that might be interesting on a bumper sticker, but what makes that interesting is this, is the story of God seems to echo that that somehow love is at the core, the center of this story of God. In fact, we have said it this way. One time when Jesus was cornered, he was asked to boil the Bible down. And he said, I'll boil the Bible down for you. Love God, love others. If you love God first and with everything inside of you, you'll love people more. If you love God first, you'll love people more. He said, love God first, love others. A little later, Jesus was with his followers and he simply wanted to boil down the Christian life. He wanted to boil down how the world's going to know that we belong to Jesus. He said, here's how you'll boil it down. It's boiled down to this, love each other. This is how the world's going to know you belong to me by your love for each other. And then the same writer a little later said this, if you want to know if you love God, love each other. Because if you don't love each other, here's what he said, 1 John, he said, then you don't know God. But if you want to say you know God, here's how it will show up, love each other. Why would he say that? Well, he says this, because God doesn't just love, God is love. You see, as it turns out, and we've said this each week, love has everything to do with it. Love is the answer. But when the Bible talks about love, stay with me on this, the Bible isn't talking about a flimsy feeling. The Bible isn't talking about an elusive emotion. When the Bible talks about love, when God wants to talk about this love that shows up, He's talking about a roll up your sleeves, put your work pants on kind of love. This is an agape kind of love is what he's talking about. That's why you have your Bibles open to 1 Corinthians 13, because some of you are familiar with this passage. You had it read at your wedding, and it sounds great. It's very artistic and literary. It's like, oh, that sounds wonderful, right? But God didn't put this in the Bible so that we could read it at our weddings. It's good if you do, but that's not why it's in there. It's written to real people by a real person. The person who wrote it, his name is Paul. He planted a church in Corinth, and that church is a mess. And so he's writing to them, answering questions and solving problems. And when you get to chapter 13, this is the key, get to chapter 13, he gets to the core of their problem. The core of their problem is simply that they didn't love each other. And so as he takes them through this journey in 1 Corinthians 13, it's as though he's climbing this steep mountain. And he starts by saying this, you might be the best preacher this church has ever had, but if you don't have love, you're just making noise. You might be the most incredible singer, sing like an angel, raise your hands, just be into worship, no love, nothing. You might know more about the Bible than anybody else in this room, no love, empty, You might be more devoted than anybody else in this room. You might be more generous, no love, meaningless. What Paul is saying at the beginning of 1 Corinthians 13, let it sit, let it sit. He's saying you and I, listen close, can be morally virtuous and spiritually bankrupt. I'm going to say that again. He's saying we can be morally virtuous, really good people, really dedicated people, and yet spiritually bankrupt. And at that minute, you begin to realize this wasn't written for a wedding so that we can feel good, sounds good. 
that somehow what Paul wrote here is something that is revealing and exposing. In fact, I've said it this way, and it'll get us where we're going today, that 1 Corinthians 13 will never help you until it crushes you. It will never save you until somehow it crushes you, reveals you, and exposes you. Which leads us to say, okay, what in the world does that love look like? And so Paul begins this steep incline up this hill called love. What's that kind of love look like? In the very first week, we looked at what Paul said. He said, love is patient, love is kind. We said simply this, that love involves give and take. Like love will take a lot without boiling over, and love will give itself away without looking to be repaid or recognized. And all of a sudden, we realize that this journey Paul's taking us on is kind of steep. But then last week, he went another layer up. He said, it doesn't envy, doesn't boast, isn't proud, doesn't dishonor others, or is not rude to others, is not self-seeking, is not easily angered. What was he saying? Well, last week we said this, love is not full of itself. That somehow when I begin to see my ego, it's empty. I try to fill it with all these things. And he said, love is not full of itself. Being full of itself means love is proud. It's arrogant. And that leads to jealousy. That leads to comparing. That leads to being self-seeking. That leads to dishonoring others. That's what Paul is saying. This morning, everybody look here a second. This morning, all we'll have time for, literally, is the next phrase. Paul says, love keeps no record of wrongs. Paul says, love keeps no record of wrongs. It's all the further we're going to go today because it's all the time we're going to have today. Now, I have some really good news. Everybody look here a second. Today's sermon, today's message, conversation, I like to call it, will not be relevant to everybody in the room. Like some of you are off the hook this morning, right? You're welcome. Some of you are, today's sermon will only be relevant to you in the room. Listen, lean in. If you've been hurt, disappointed, wronged, irritated, or frustrated by somebody, the rest of you are off the hook, all right? Feel good about yourself? But if you're somebody who's never been wronged, hurt, frustrated, irritated, or disappointed by somebody, can I encourage you to take notes? Because if you haven't, I don't know what world you're living in, but you might want to take notes because you will. And because you will, and because I know you will, Paul says this, love keeps no record of wrongs. It's like Paul is climbing up the steep mountain, stay with me. In the steep mountain, we began to lose our air when he said, love is patient, love is kind. Love takes a lot, doesn't boil over. Love gives a lot, doesn't look to be repaid or recognized. It's like I can barely get my breath. That feels heavy. That feels like a high, steep altitude. And then last week, he said, we're not done yet. We're going to go even further. And I can't quite catch my breath. He said, love is not full of itself. And it's like, I can't find myself. It's as though today in this one small phrase, he goes thousands of feet up in altitude. The air is thin up here. He says, love keeps no record of wrongs. Literally the word that he uses, you can forget this, but the Greek word that he uses is an accounting term. He says, love doesn't calculate, keep a ledger, keep a record of the wrong things that have been done. In fact, I like the way a paraphrase, and I want to say it that way, a paraphrase called the message says it. When it's talking about 1 Corinthians 13, it says, love never gives up. Love cares more for others than for self. Love doesn't want what it doesn't have. Love doesn't strut. I love that. Love doesn't have a swelled head. Love doesn't force itself on others. Isn't always me first. Love doesn't fly off the handle, but when it talks about not keeping record of wrongs, I love the way it says it. Love doesn't keep score of the sins of others. I want you to write this down. All Paul is saying is love does not keep score. 
Love does not keep score. Here's what Paul is going to do today. He's going to expose, reveal, uncover our natural tendency to keep score. Paul is going to expose our natural tendency to keep a record of wrongs. I don't know if you've ever noticed this. Some of you in the room are married, right? And so you can apply this to your marriage. Some of you got really good friends, maybe roommates, whatever it might be. Here's the deal. You ever notice with whether your spouse or a really good friend that sometimes when you get in a fight, anybody married in the room ever get in a fight? Just let me see your hands. Yeah, the rest of you are lying. All right, I'm just going to say, like I have all kinds of husbands out there like, am I allowed to raise my hand? Like if, if you've never gotten a squabble, right? Uh, we need to talk, right? Uh, my wife and I have gotten in tons of squabbles, okay? I'll just tell you that, just so you know you're safe here in church, right? Tons of squabbles. You ever notice that when you get in a squabble, and if you're not sure what that is, a fight, disagreement, right? Do you ever notice that in order, in the middle of that squabble, that all of a sudden you begin to say, well, you never remember back, you remember? Back in 1994 when you did this to me, anybody ever do that? Why in the world do we all of a sudden, when we get in a disagreement, we get not hysterical, we get historical? (laughs) Why do we keep score? Why do we keep a record of wrongs? Why do we do that? Listen, I'm going to tell you why we do that. We keep a record of wrongs because we want to keep a record of wrongs just in case we might need it. Because I might need it, because I might need to pull it out at the right time in the right argument, because listen, lean in, don't judge me, because I want to win the argument, and so do you. And so I keep a record of wrongs because I might need something to beef up my argument. Paul says love doesn't do that. Love doesn't keep a record of wrongs. Love doesn't keep score. Instead, it chooses to forgive. Why does he say that? Because one thing you can count on, one thing you can count on, you can write this down, take it to the bank, you can count on it. People will hurt you, disappoint you, frustrate you, wrong you, irritate the snot out of you. Can I get an amen on that? And that's why Paul says love doesn't keep a record of wrongs. In fact, the crazy thing is this, you ought to write this down, that those people that you love the most have the potential to hurt you the worst. That's the truth. The people you love the most have the potential to hurt you the worst. The greater the relationship, the higher the potential for hurt. The greater the commitment, the greater the risk. It's one thing. It's one thing for a coworker that you barely know to lie to you, right? It's a completely different thing when it's your spouse. It's one thing when there's a kid at school who blows you off and he sits several rows over and you don't really know him that well. It's a totally different thing when it's your parents who blow you off. You see, here's the interesting thing about love. The greater the relationship, the more love there is, the greater the risk there is at being hurt. There is no one in this room. In fact, you guys together cumulatively could not even come close to hurting me to the degree Jennifer Gregory could. My relationship with my wife is in a different orbit, different plane. There is no one on the planet that could hurt me quite like she can. There is no one that I love quite like her. And that's simply the truth. 
And so here's what we know. When Paul says love keeps no record of wrongs, we are in steep altitude here. We are in thin air. We are gonna have trouble getting our breath. We all have been hurt by others. And Paul says, when it happens, love doesn't keep record of wrongs. When it happens, love doesn't keep score. Why does he say that? Listen close. Because when I, you, we keep score, it seasons us. When we keep record, it runs us. And all of us are going to be hurt. In fact, all of us are going to be hurt, disappointed, frustrated, and some of us are there right now, and we deal with it in different ways. See if you can find yourself. Some of us in the room, when we're hurt, here's how we deal with it. We deal with it in a John Wayne kind of way. You know what I'm talking about? Like, I've just aged myself. We're kind of tough guy. That doesn't hurt. doesn't bother me. No problem. Somebody comes and tries to acknowledge a hurt. It wasn't a big deal. So what we do is we deny, we lie, and we say it didn't hurt. We deny there's any pain. We put a smile on the outside, tough exterior, give a tough upper lip, so to speak, build up walls. And here's the problem with denial. Denial doesn't work. Some of you are denying pain in your life. Denial doesn't work. You're saying, Dan, help me understand that. I'd be happy to. Denying my hurt allows my hurt to deaden my heart. When I deny my hurt, It just simply allows my hurt to deaden my heart. Denying my hurt doesn't mean that it doesn't hurt. Denying my hurt simply is my way of building a defense. And when I deny my hurt, stay with me on this picture. When I deny my hurt, I simply build walls around myself. And some of us in the room have built walls around myself. It doesn't hurt. You can't bother me. You can't get to me. No big deal. I don't have a problem with it. I just keep moving on. Because some of us, particularly some of us guys, that's the way we were taught. You don't ever let it get to you. And so what we do is we build walls around ourselves, denying our hurt. Here's the problem with building walls, the walls of denial. Denial deadens my heart. Listen close. And it deadens my heart, not just to the pain that I feel, but when I build walls, it deadens my heart and my life to the very thing that makes relationships meaningful and matter. And eventually, I can't feel experience the love that I was intended to feel and experience. This will explain why some of you husbands are emotionally dead and your wife wishes she could make a connection. Well, it's not just guys. This explains why some of you gals are emotionally dead and your friends wish they could somehow get where you won't let them. You see, when I deny my hurt, I deaden my heart. And when I deaden my heart, I deaden my heart to the very thing that Paul is talking about here. Not just the pain I feel, but the love that I can experience because the greater the love, listen close, the greater the risk for pain. The greater the love, the greater the risk for pain. The more I love Jennifer, the greater the risk that she can hurt me. The more I love Jennifer, the greater the risk. Some of us have walled ourselves off. There's others of us. We're not in denial. Some of us in the room, see if you can find yourself, we're into justice. And our mode of operation isn't building walls of denial, but it is seeking revenge. Revenge says that you hurt me, I'm going to make sure I hurt you. Revenge says I'm going to even the score. Revenge says I don't want you to get ahead. Revenge says I'm hurt, and so I'm going to make sure you hurt like I hurt. In fact, preferably, I would like it if you hurt 
more than I hurt. I don't want to just even the score. I sure would like to get ahead in the score. You see, here's the problem with revenge. I want you to write this down. Revenging my hurt allows my hurt to control my heart. And all of a sudden, when I revenge my hurt and it controls my heart, I become just like the person who hurt me in the first place. That's what happens. And all of a sudden, it turns me into somebody that I don't even recognize. That's why some of you in the room, I'm not, some of you don't look at each other, some of you in the room, there are some of you that are maybe married couples, friends, and you can never resolve a conflict. You know why? Because you're always dealing with each other in a competitive way, looking to even the score. And so if I feel like my spouse is a little bit ahead or they've done more to me than I've got to, and it excuses me to do more to them, well, then I got to, and then, and you never resolve conflict because you're competing instead of loving. You see, in this weird way of keeping score, I can't allow you to get ahead. So every relationship I have has this mental scoreboard on it. And I got to make sure at minimum the score's even. At, at best, I want to somehow be ahead. Guys, listen to me. Listen, listen, let's, let's, let's just make sense of this. In a very severe way, It is, in a very severe way, lean in, in a very severe way, this is the very thing, this is the very reason a person will go into their place of employment where they've either been fired or they're disenfranchised, and this is the very thing that will cause them to open fire in their place of employment. Revenge. You fired me, I'm getting back at all of you, right? And so we watch that play out in the news, and we're like, how could they, and but listen, I think in an equally dangerous way, it happens subtly in kitchens and living rooms all across the greater Akron area when spouses just shoot. You remember when? I'm going to. How come you did that? Because you did this. See, revenge just allows my hurt to control my heart. Denial just allows my hurt to deaden my heart, but there's another way that many of us deal with our hurt. And I would say maybe it's even more common than the first two, and that's this. We have the art of carrying a grudge. Like we carry around with us this ill feeling, this resentment because of a past pain. And here's what I know about carrying a grudge or holding a grudge. Carrying a grudge only allows my hurt to contaminate my heart. There's something really important here. When I hold or carry a grudge, it explains why some of us, explains why some of us, listen close, let's just make this real. It explains why some of us in this room are so negative, so critical, so cynical, so crusty. For some of us, the reason that we're that way, it's not an excuse, it's an explanation. It's because we've been carrying a grudge. That grudge is heavy, it's big, and it's steep. And for some of us, the grudge that we're carrying contaminates our heart, it contaminates our attitude. For some of us, carrying a grudge is why we are a perpetual victim. Because if my daddy had been, if my mommy was, if my friends were more, if my boss was, I'd be nicer and because they're not, I'm the perpetual victim. But, but for many of us, it's broader than that. The grudge we're carrying, lean in, I want to teach you something this morning that really popped for me this week. For many of us, we carry a grudge and it shadows 
every relationship we have. You see the picture? My best attempt. It's a picture of a guy literally carrying grudges. And for some of us, those grudges are piled so high. And what we do is we decide to carry them around with us, and they get heavy. And so it makes us cranky. It makes us cynical. But here's what happens when we carry those grudges, that every relationship we walk into, the grudge that I carry shadows every relationship I have. It covers every relationship I have. Listen, listen, let's just make this real. That's why. That's why there's some of you guys in the room, and there's not any woman that walks the planet that you'll trust because of the one woman who broke your trust. Let's be equal opportunity. There's some of you, some of you guys, some of you gals, you had that guy in your life, and so every guy you meet, they're all, they're all miserable, they're all pigs because of the one guy. For some of you young people in the room, it's like I'm never going to listen to, respond to, respect authority because you had that one authority. And every relationship you come across shadows by this grudge that you carry. In fact, one that's interesting to me is this. I've met older people, older people that hate it. Don't look around, but older people that hate it when they see young people having fun. You ever meet people like that? And I never could quite get my head around that until I realized that sometimes it's because they were a kid who somehow somebody wouldn't let them have fun. So every relationship they see having fun in their younger years, it shadows. You shouldn't have fun. I wasn't allowed to have fun. You see, for some of you, the grudge that you're carrying is so steep, it's so big, it's so large that it shadows every relationship you have. It makes you negative and cynical because it's heavy to carry, and it affects every relationship you have. You're saying, Dan, why does this matter? Because keeping score causes me to lose what matters most in my relationships. And what matters most in my relationships is what Paul says is love. And some of you in the room... I know this in a room this size. I know this. Some of you in the room are forfeiting what matters most. Because of either a grudge that you're carrying or revenge that you're seeking or because you are choosing to live in a box of denial. And this kind of love is steep. And all of a sudden you're like, how in the world do I breathe? And some of you have people in your mind that you're thinking of right now Here's what you're thinking, and I want you to think this. Let it smash you. How do I love like that? How? It's like desperate. I can't get my breath. And we've said every week, this kind of love will never be anything I extend until I experience it. This kind of love that Paul's talking about is not a checklist that I perform. It's a person that I meet. In fact, every week I've asked you to write this down. This love is a response to receiving this love from God. You see, the story of God is all about the fact that you and I have received this kind of love from God. The God who is love, 1 John 4, demonstrated his love in the most profound way to you and to me. And the only way that I'll ever begin to love like this is to recognize that I've been loved like this. And it starts with me acknowledging that Jesus settled my score at the cross. I want you to write that down. 
because that's the gospel. The story of God is about you and I having the possibility to have a meaningful relationship with God because at the cross, Jesus died not to keep score, but to settle my score, to settle your score. When Jesus died on the cross, it was a demonstration of God's love, how much he loves you. In fact, Romans 5.8 says this, God showed how incredible his love for us was by sending Christ to die for us while we were still sinners. You see, the one who owed nothing paid everything. Until you understand this, you will not get forgiveness at all. I'm going to say that again. Until you go here, you will not get forgiveness at all. Some of us in this room have tried to live our entire lives and we think of God as this cosmic scorekeeper and we're not sure where we're at in the score. So what we're trying to do is settle the score with God. And the gospel says the score has been settled. That literally God is not keeping score. That God took all of the score that needed to be settled and the gospel says this. He took all of that ledger that listed all of the things and quite frankly, it's lengthy. All of the things that Dan, all of the score that needs to be settled and the gospel says this. Boom, he nailed it to the cross. You see, that's God's love for us. You see, here's what I know. Think about this. That my sin causes me to be walled off from God. Causes me to be walled off from God. Listen close. But God didn't deny that I hurt him by my sin. He, through the gospel and through Jesus Christ, crashed through the wall so that he could save and forgive me. If there's anybody, if there's anybody who could seek revenge against me, if there's anybody who could seek revenge against me, guys, I'm going to tell you something. It's God. I have frustrated him, disappointed him, turned my back on him. If there's anybody who could seek revenge, but God's love for me is so great, he doesn't seek revenge. He instead sought redemption for me. Guys, if there's anybody who could hold a grudge against me, anybody who could hold a grudge, it's God. I I got a long list of things that God could carry a grudge about Dan Gregory for. God's love for me is so great that God decided not to carry a grudge. Instead, listen close, he carried a cross. See, the love of God is so great. Jesus died on the cross so that I could be forgiven from all of the things. And when he did, the score was settled. And I will never, listen close, understand what it means to forgive others and not keep a record of wrong until I experience that, till I recognize that, till I embrace that, till I realize how big and immense that forgiveness that God has for me is. And it makes Ephesians 4 begin to pop for me. Instead, be kind to each other, tenderhearted. Forgiving one another doesn't stop there. Just as God, through Christ, has forgiven you. It's like, how in the world do I forgive all those things I'm thinking about right now? And the only way I know to do it is to experience it, to extend it, to experience it, to extend it. Some of you have not experienced it. I'm not saying you're not moral. I'm not saying you're not a good person. I'm saying you've not experienced it. Because I can't figure out how to extend it. Reminds me of a story Jesus told. He was a master storyteller. He told it to a guy named Peter. I love Peter, right? 
Peter had a question for Jesus. I think personally Peter was trying to impress Jesus. He came to Jesus and said, how many times should I forgive somebody? And then he offered an answer. He said, seven. That might not make any sense to you, but the rabbis, the teachers of the day said you should forgive somebody three times. Peter's trying to impress Jesus. He said, should I forgive seven times? I'll take it times two plus one. He thought maybe Jesus would be like, good job, Pete. Man, you're going overboard, overachiever. Instead, Jesus said, nah, how about 70 times seven? (laughs) Jesus, in essence, said to Peter, if you're keeping track, you're missing the point. And then he doesn't just give Peter an answer. He says, can I illustrate this? And he tells a story, and the story's fascinating. He tells a story about a king. And this king was settling his accounts He was going from person to person because these people owed him money. And he came to one guy who owed him 10,000 bags of gold. Keep this in mind, about 20 years worth of wages. In case you didn't hear me, I said 20 years worth of wages. You figure your annual salary, take it times 20. That's what this dude owes. And the king said, it's time to pay up. The guy's like, man, I will never be able to pay you that. And the guy begins to beg and to plead for mercy. The king says, there's got to be consequence. The guy says, I cannot pay. Please have mercy on me. And the king, don't miss this in the story, canceled the debt. Forgave the debt. And you can almost feel Peter and the followers of Christ like, man, that's awesome. What a great story. I love that story. Love 20 years worth of wages canceled. Jesus is like, I'm not done with the story. And this is where we begin to find ourselves and allow this to expose us. He said that same guy who walked away, all of a sudden, debt-free, went out and found his friend. And his friend owed him some money. It wasn't minimal. His friend owed him 100 days' wages. Significant. He says, I'm asking you to pay up. The friend says, I don't have the wherewithal to pay up. Please have mercy on me. You better pay up. You're going to prison. Think about how ludicrous that is. Let that sink in for a minute. How in the world is he ever going to get the money to pay him back in prison? Some of you this morning are going to have to let somebody out of prison in your life. And as you're going to find in the story that someone might be you. He looked at him and said, pay the money. He said, I can't pay the money. You better pay the money. He said, I can't. He sent that man off to jail. You can almost feel the tension in the room. Jesus continues to tell the story, and eventually the word gets back to the king that the guy that he just forgave 20 years worth of wages went out and found a guy who owed him 100 days wages, and he would not forgive. He sent him to jail. Jesus said that king called in that servant, and he said, didn't I forgive you 20 years worth of wages? Yes. How could you receive so much mercy and forgiveness from me and yet refuse to extend it to your friend? And the story ends by the king sending that man off to jail, which I think is a picture of the jail that many of us live in, the jail of bitterness, resentment, and unforgiveness. You see, that story in Matthew 18 tells me this. When you and I act like the king, when we act like the king, we end up in prison. 
But you and I can be free because the king, the king who can save us became our servant to free us. You see, here's what I know. You will never, you will never out-forgive God. And I need to be honest with you, this week, it made a passage of Scripture pop for me that I've heard preached a gazillion times, and it's never made this much sense to me. Because two chapters earlier, Jesus said this to his followers, and many of you have heard this, and if you've never heard it before, look at it with me. Jesus said to his followers, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow me. Everybody listen in. I've always heard this, and I've always, anytime I've heard a preacher preach this, I've always left like, man, I've got to try harder, work harder, I've got to give more, I've got to, uh, uh, you know, I've always left feeling like, oh, man, I'm not doing enough. And maybe that's in there, maybe that's part of it, but all of a sudden it began to pop for me because I think what Jesus is saying, I want you to follow me. Where was Jesus going? He was going to the cross. And he said, here's what I want you to do. I want you to take up your cross because here's the deal. I'm taking up my cross, and it's my cross that I'm taking up that's going to give you forgiveness. And my cross will always be bigger than your cross. And he said, I want you to take up your cross because you're going to have relationships, and there's going to be people in your life who are going to hurt you, and you're going to take that cross as you follow the one who has the cross. And if you'll take that cross and you take it every day, you choose to daily, he says in another place, take up your cross, here's the deal. You let go of your grudges and all of a sudden it's the shadow of the cross that begins to flavor your relationships. You tracking with me? And the only way for me to experience that is to follow the one who took my cross. He goes on to say, you want to save your life? You'll lose it. But whoever loses their life for me will find it. Some of you will not forgive the person that you are married to because you're afraid somehow they're going to get ahead. They're going to seem right. I got to save face. I got to save face. But whoever loses their life for me will find it. What good will it be for someone to gain the whole world yet lose their own soul? What good would it be for you to have the nicest house in the neighborhood, to have two salaries with tons of income, and yet lose your soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? Some of you are sitting here this morning, and I know this to be a fact. You're in a prison. You're in a prison of unforgiveness. You're drinking the poison of bitterness. You've lived caged in by your anger. You relate to everyone as a victim. You're sarcastic to everyone. You're cynical. Your friends can never win because you're always finding fault. Your spouse can never win because you're always cutting, cutting them down. And your resentment just follows you like a shadow, and it shadows every relationship you have. Forgiveness. Forgiveness is a choice that I make every day because of the fact that I've been forgiven. And the minute I experience that forgiveness, some of us haven't experienced that, I can begin to extend it. Everybody look here a second. You ain't got no preacher preaching at you today. You ain't got that. Everybody look here. I want to see your eyes. I love you guys. 
I know some of you better than others. I, I love you guys. I will tell you, I will tell you, this is the hardest lesson, truth God has ever had to drag this old boy through. There was a time in my life when the hurt and the resentment and the injustice that somehow began to pile on by other people became so big, I carried it around. It shadowed every relationship I had. I felt myself literally the life going out of me. I remember sitting across the table from an old fellow. I began sharing as I was thinking about stepping away from ministry altogether. Just, I just had had enough. I didn't want anything else to do with it. I was never going to see vindication. The person who did the wrong was never going to say they were sorry. He asked me one question. He said, Dan, you can spend the rest of your life trying to settle the score. He said, or you can let God settle the score. Who do you think will have a better shot of doing it better? I'm going to tell you something, I was mad, I wanted to say me, just telling you where I was at, because I know that's where some of you are at. But it began to lead me to a truth that some of you need to hear this morning, and that's this, some of you have people in your life, and they've hurt you, and they've disappointed you, and I would say this, I need to allow, somehow, can we flip that slide, Matt? I need to allow, maybe not, there we go, allow the one who settled my score to be the one to settle their score at the cross. You see, that's where forgiveness happens. If it happens when I allow the one who settled my score to settle their score, whatever that score is, and I allow him to do it at the cross, can I tell you this? He does a better job. Can I tell you this? I, I don't know about you, maybe you don't struggle with this. Maybe you're fine. I will never out-forgive God. Some of you are dying from the inside out. Some of you are dying from the inside out. You're living caged in a prison. You can't find a way out, and you think the only way out is to even the score. And he says, no, the only way out is to let me settle the score. I'm going to invite Aiden and Garrett to come back out. And as they do, can I just be honest with you guys? Can you not put your stuff away for a second? This is hard stuff. Can we just say that? I told you it was going to be a hard conversation. Some of you have been hurt. Some of you have been disappointed. Some of you are sitting beside somebody right now, and they are the person. And you want so bad for this service to come to an end because right now it just feels kind of uncomfortable. Some of you are mad that I'm even talking about this because you don't know and I don't know. But I do know what God says, and I have a feeling he knows more than I know and even more than you know. And he says, love keeps no record of wrongs because when I keep a record of wrongs, what happens is I end up being ruined. When I keep score, it seasons me. And some of you are walking around and every relationship is shadowed by the grudge you're carrying. Some of you are sitting here and you have so walled yourself off, you're in such denial about the pain inside of you that you can't even experience or extend love anymore. You're isolated. 
Some of you are so bent on revenge that the only thing you can think about is, did they get ahead and what do I need to do to get ahead and how can I make my case? And he says, love keeps no record of wrongs. Can I say to you this? Listen, listen. I just want to be tender. I want to be tender not for any other reason other than the fact that these are all very hard things that I've had to grapple with. Don't wait for an apology. It may never come. The deepest hurts in my life have never been apologized for. There's never been vindication. There's never been justice. Forgiveness takes one person. Reconciliation takes two. Reconciliation isn't always possible. Forgiveness is. Doesn't mean your relationship will go on the same as it always was. Forgiveness is a gift you offered because it's a gift you've received. Trust is earned over time. Doesn't mean that person has to go back to playing the same role in your life. Oh, can I tell you this about forgiveness? It doesn't mean the pain's all of a sudden going to leave. Forgiveness is an everyday choice to take up my cross and follow the one who took up his cross. And sometimes it's an everyday, I don't know your struggle for me, it's an everyday decision to take up my cross so that somehow the cross shadows my relationships and not my grudges and not my hurt. It's fascinating that when I take up my cross and fix my eyes on the one who took up his cross, there's a freedom. Quite frankly, there's a freedom that some of you in this room need today. So God, today's not a normal day. We don't want it to be. We want today to be the first day of the rest of our days where we can experience freedom. Some of us in this room are carrying really, 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 really big grudges. Some of us are just keeping score. Some of us are so bitter inside. I'm going to ask you while you're sitting there to, to just ask God in the privacy of this moment to bring that person, that situation into your mind. And then I'm going to ask you to ask God to help you to acknowledge the fact that he settled the score at the cross for you and then to allow you to allow him to settle your score with that person at the same cross and to help you take up your cross daily and follow him. Some of you are so bent on saving face, so bent on somehow coming out ahead, so bent on somebody else doesn't get ahead, so bent on making sure they hurt like you hurt. And if you're honest, it's not freeing at all. It just is sucking the life out of you. It's sucking the life out of your friendship. It's sucking the life out of your marriage. This morning, Jesus' invitation to you is to experience freedom. 
So God, I pray that in the quietness, tenderness of this moment, you'd take us to an old wooden cross where there you settled the score for us and that you would help us there to find the power to allow you to settle the scores that we keep carrying around with us.